The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. To the right. If you've never found it before, it's after Psalms, it's after Proverbs, before Song of Solomon. While you're turning there, uh, just a heads up, and this is important, next Wednesday there's no church. Everybody say no church. Okay, here's why. Next week is Easter week, so we're having our Good Friday service in place of our Wednesday night service. So if you're planning on coming out next Wednesday, just shift it two days forward and come out to our uh, Good Friday service. It's going to be same time, same place, except for we'll be in the sanctuary. Guys, seriously, one of the coolest um, and just one of the most like cross gospel focused services that we do. It's a great, great time to come out and, and uh, really get prepared uh, for Resurrection Day. So if you guys are able to next Friday join us, don't forget no Wednesdays. Let some people know as well. So let's pray and then we're going to jump into this new series. Well, Father in heaven, we just quiet our hearts before you. God, we hold your word in highest reverence. God, we've seen it. So many in this room have seen your word transform our lives. God, we've seen what happens when we subject ourselves and our will and our emotion and our feeling to the never-changing word of God. And Lord, as we approach this ancient book with such wisdom, such real, uh, real life, God, would you shape our flawed and sinful minds. God, give us wisdom as we plunge into this book, Lord, and for the next nine weeks even, just to to really be able to see the gospel through these writings, to be healed through these writings, to find hope through this book. And Holy Spirit, as always, will you push me aside? Will you get me out of the way as quick as possible, and will you begin to speak to your church tonight? Because no one is interested in what I have to say. We're all eager and ready to hear from our good shepherd tonight, from our pastor, you, Jesus Christ. So Lord, speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so tonight um, we're gonna do just a short teaching time. Uh, Whenever a pastor says that, you never believe him, but honestly, like 20, 25 minutes. And then we, we got some cookies and some water and some oranges and some snacks to try to entice you guys after the teaching time, we're gonna leave a chunk of time. Uh, we'll probably be done right around 7.30. Um, I want you guys just to hang out, okay? So if, if you guys will, don't run off the setup crew, guys. If you could hold off even sitting, uh, putting the chairs away just for like a little bit so we can just kinda of hang out, have some snacks, get to know some new people, get to know someone you don't know, get to, someone, get to know someone you do know. But after the teaching time, stick around, okay? There'll be some snacks in the back. Sound good? Capiche? Okay, cool. It's important that we get to know, to get, get to know each other on these, these Wednesday nights. If we just come and leave, um, not, not as much happens as should. So, Okay, Ecclesiastes, everybody there? Okay, let's, let's, let's dig right in. Um, when I was about eight years old, my family and I moved into what's called an adult trailer park. Okay, uh, in a little city, uh, not a city, a little town called Montague, California. Anybody ever been to Montague, California? Wow, crazy. More people have been there than live there. Um, so yeah, that's where, uh, that's where we lived. Uh, we moved from Grenada to Montague. We moved into the adult trailer park. And what an adult trailer park basically is, it means it's all people that are sort of um, older, 
Okay, <laughs> now uh, we were kind of this anomaly. They let us in because we were good kids and my parents said, hey, they're good kids and don't worry. But everyone in there was like 70, 80 years old. Okay, they were all older folks. Um, so it was a real quiet kind of, kind of a place. Um, they probably uh, hated the fact that I bounced my basketball every day and all these kinds of things. But I created these relationships with these people. Now, when we first moved there, I didn't really have a lot of friends my age uh, that, were, that were in the neighborhood, so I spent a lot of time with the people that lived in this trailer park, these people in their 70s and 80s. I still remember sitting every day on Mr. Callahan's porch. I would go over as an eight-year-old kid, knock on his door, and he would give me soda. We'd drink, uh, you know, uh, Shasta soda diet, uh, you know, on the porch. Um, and, he, and we'd just talk, and he'd tell me stories and I'd hear about his life and then um, I'd go around and water everybody's yard and they'd pay me like 50 cents a day to do it. I made bank. It was awesome. Um, and I'd go next door to another gal, Mrs. McElroy's house and collect my check for watching her poodle and um, you know, we'd talk and she'd give uh, stories about life and things. And so from a very young age, I was very comfortable around older uh, people, people in sort of that, that uh, latter region of the years of life. And it's actually really amazing how um, how much I, I kind of noticed, even from that age. Like you, you don't even realize how much like eight-year-olds notice and how much they observe. But one thing that I remember thinking, literally, I remember thinking to myself about all of these people, and they were so sweet and they were so nice and, and they were so, so good to me, but one thing I noticed was that people seem to get grumpier as they get older. Have you noticed that? Like, like whenever they would talk about life or talk about the world, it was always very kind of like bitter, like just very like, like just um, kind of jaded. And I'm like, why is that? Why, what is it? And, and, and as a kid, I just remember thinking, what is it like to get older, you know? As a kid, everything is in front of you. You go to bed thinking, um, even no matter how bad the day was that day, you know that, well, good things are coming because I'm young and everything is in front of me and everything is ahead of me and everything's gonna get better from here and you look forward to being out of school or you look forward to getting a job or you look forward to having a family, you look forward to all of these things. And then as you get older, those things start to go away and you run out of options to look forward to, right? I mean, my life, for the most part, has kind of sort of felt like a one big what's next. You know, okay, that was cool, what's next? Okay, that was okay, what's next? But then you hit a certain point in your life where you can't really say what's next anymore. It's kind of interesting. Now, as we grow up as people, we become multiple different people, you know that? Like you've probably been five versions of yourself in the last however many years that you've been alive. Like, I'm not the same person that I was five years ago. I probably will be a different person in five years than I am now. Life and experiences and those things shape us into who we are. And as we get older, the problem is, is we run out of things to distract us from realizing that life is a bummer. We do. Um, Here's my theory, okay? My theory is that we grow into being two different things. You can grow into being, number one, a grumpy or jaded person, Okay, someone that's unhappy with life. You can either grow into, do, into being that or you can grow into being someone who ignores the hardship of life. Okay, I talked about this a few Sundays ago. Some of this is gonna be a little bit of review. Um, but basically, you can either live life distracted or dissatisfied. Okay? You can either live your life uncontent with life, discontent with life, or you can just continue to distract yourself from that. And I think you get good at one of these two things. So either you continue to be more bitter in life, or you continue to get better at distracting yourself from life. Now, my generation, I think we usually are better at getting bitter. Uh, we're the ones that, that feel like we should be able to express ourselves and our emotion through music and through art and all these things, and we're real quick to tell you when we're having a bad day, 
The generation or two before us, though, maybe the generation that, that was born into the Great Depression or World War II or even after that, was kind of like a suck it up and live. You know, like you don't complain about things, you don't feel, you don't let things out, you just plow through life and no one wants to hear your woes. My generation, we're all about telling, that's why we have emo music. That's why rock and roll was born. Like, tell everybody how mad I am. Everyone needs to feel how upset uh, that I am. Okay, but as you get older, the truth is, is as you get older, you just run out of reasons to keep thinking that life is gonna be great. You know, even at my age, I still have so much to look forward to. I may have another kid coming someday, or not right now, uh, someday, <laughs> maybe a while off of another kid, or, or whatever. I mean, all these things I still have to look forward to, but I'm already noticing this trajectory in my life where I'm starting to realize, like, man, life's still not quite what I thought it was going to be. It always sort of leaves you wanting. It sort of leaves you disappointed. And my question is, what happens when there's no more what's next? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when, when you hit a point where you realize that you've been looking forward to things your whole life and now you're out of things to look forward to and that none of them were ever quite what you thought? What happens when your distractions run out, when the things that you sort of use to get through the day cease to be there? And what happens when you can no longer cope with life anymore? And what happens when you are forced to deal with pain? You can no longer shove it down anymore. It has to be dealt with. Now, most of us spend most of our lives trying not to think about all that stuff I just said. That's depressing. It's discouraging. Okay? Ecclesiastes, listen, Ecclesiastes plunges headfirst into the thick of it. Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read this book, you're gonna st you'll start reading, oh, wow, this is the most depressing book in the Bible. And you're probably right if you don't read the whole thing. It just plunges head first. The writer literally goes, I'm going to spend 12 chapters or however many, um, literally just writing down everything that sucks about the world. Okay, everything that's horrible about life. Everything that's difficult about life. Everything that seems meaningless about life. He just goes on and on and on about it. And that's what we're going to spend the next nine weeks in. Are you guys excited? You're like, yeah, we won't be here next week. Okay. But here's why it's important. It's important because we don't find truth by stuffing pain. Okay? We don't find truth by hiding sorrow. We don't find life by ignoring the injustice and, and the cruelty and the pain and the sorrow of this world. We don't find truth that way. We find it by opening our eyes and dealing with it and saying, why is it this way? Why do I have to hurt? Why is there injustice? Why do I have longing? Why do I struggle with depression? Why am I insecure? Why do I wake up depressed for no reason? We have to ask these questions. If you don't and you keep stuffing it, then you just never fix anything and it gets worse. As Christians, we have to be willing to be honest about our pain and to be honest about the world and the way it is. We have to take it on full frontal and say, we get it. There's pain. Now let's figure out why, okay? Because there's no joy by ignoring it. You guys ever, you guys, have you lived that before? You understand that? I mean, that's true. The more you stuff your pain, the, it never goes away. So tonight, it's gonna be really nuts and bolts, just to give you guys a heads up again, it's gonna be short. Um, just a quick intro, background, that kind of thing, and then in the next weeks to come, we're gonna get more into real of the, <laughs> the meat of it. But here's what I wanna look at tonight, if you're taking notes. We're gonna look at four things. Number one, we're gonna look at the author 
I wanna spend some time getting to know who wrote this book because as you know, it matters, okay? We need to figure out what perspective was he coming from when he penned what he penned. Secondly, we're gonna talk about how to read this book. This is something that Ecclesiastes is very confusing on. How do you read this book, okay? Because it is a very specific type of book as we'll talk about. Number three, we're gonna talk about why you should read this book, okay? Why you should read this book. And then fourthly, we're gonna give a roadmap. I want you guys to see where we're gonna go over the next few weeks and kind of know what subjects you can look forward to and, and what's, what's gonna be coming up. So, you guys ready for that? Let's jump in. Verse one, chapter one, Ecclesiastes. The words, everybody there? The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. I wanna stop right there. Before we move on, I wanna figure out who is the preacher Okay, so the bio, uh, this, this book of the Bible starts off by addressing the author in third person and referring to him as the preacher. Now, you guys all probably know the author is considered to be Solomon, okay? But it doesn't say Solomon. He refers to himself as the preacher, which is really interesting. Um, and what the preacher basically means is, is the one who does what I'm doing right now, stands up and declares to a group of people, communicates to a group of people. Um, if you're familiar uh, with the Greek term for church, do you know what it is? Ekklesia, okay? So what they did when they named this book in our common language is they took the preacher who speaks to Ekklesia and they called the book Ecclesiastes. Does that make sense? That's why it's called Ecclesiastes. It's, it's not taken from the Hebrew, it's taken from the Greek of Ecclesia, which is church. Most scholars agree that the preacher the one who is proclaiming this book and the truths in this book is none other than Solomon. So the real question, question is who is Solomon? Solomon was not the only son of David, okay? David actually had 19 sons that we know of, okay? At least 19 sons that were named. So he had a lot of sons, he had a lot of wives, okay? Um, so that tells us a few things about what it would have been like to grow up as Solomon, right? First of all, Solomon grew up as a dugger. Right, 19 kids and counting. Like, just thought of that one. Just right off the top, guys. Come on. Um, anyway, sorry, the, the Duggars. Yeah, so he grew up in 19 siblings. So um, he grew up with a lot of people around him. Okay, he was a king's son uh, in, in a mighty season uh, of Israel where they were a superpower, where they were literally wealthy. And so he would have grown up probably in Jerusalem in the capital city with lots of wealth and lots of servants and lots of people taking care of him. As I said, lots of siblings. He would have grown up in the shadow of his older brother whose name is Absalom, right? You remember in, in, the, in the books of Samuel, the story of Absalom who was the king that actually went to war against his father, David, and ended up losing his life. Um, Absalom split the kingdom for a season, and then after his life was lost, David took command again of the whole um, north and south. But think about this for a minute, okay? Think about Solomon growing up in the shadow of his older brother Absalom, and then having to deal with the baggage that his father had from his failed relationship with his older son Absalom, okay? He would, he would have some hardship there. Solomon maybe trying to press through to his father to get to his father and his father being very maybe guarded and maybe very um, emotionally withdrawn from Solomon because of his relationship with his older brother that went horribly. Absalom completely rebelling from David and trying to take the kingdom away from him. Okay, there would be some, some more than likely some issues there. And not only that, but Solomon grew up in the shadow of his father as well. 
being the one to take on the kingdom, he would have had expectations put on him to be like his father, to be greater than his father. All kinds of issues. So, Solomon, let's first, let's, let's start, first start and talk about his greatness, okay? And then the list which is longer, which is sinfulness, because men's list of sinfulness is always longer than our list of greatness, right? So let's start with his greatness. He did a lot of good things, did a lot of great things. As I already said, he took over the throne from his father. Okay? He became king. He was the third king of the monarchical kingdom, which means that he was the third king to rule all of Israel before it was split into two kingdoms. Uh, he wrote three books of the Bible, okay? which is a pretty big deal. Okay? That's, like a, that's a pretty cool thing to put on your bucket list. I wrote scripture three times. Okay? He wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. Okay? And it's actually really funny, uh, as a side note, to look at the progression of Solomon's heart as he writes these books. He writes Song of Solomon, he's sort of this young, romantic, whimsical, everything's great, my beloved is mine and I am hers, and she's a palm tree, and blah, 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 and her sheep, she has sheep's hair, and yeah, whatever. Um, he's very romantic, you know, and then, and then he moves into Proverbs and he's very like, you know, save your money, and be wise, and he gets very practical, very, very, very ironclad wisdom. And then by the time he gets into Ecclesiastes, it's thought that he's an older man. And he comes off very cynical, very cynical and very jaded by life. He's just very depressed. Comes off just like wounded and hurt by the life that he's lived. So it's kind of funny seeing the progression of Solomon. He's also famous for building the first temple. Did you know that? Um, he, David wanted to build a temple for God, but he couldn't because he was a man of war. He had unclean hands. God wouldn't allow David to build a house, so it passed on to his son Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. That temple is gone now. Um, it is underground. Uh, they're still trying to find it in a lot. It's, it's underneath the Temple Mount, which is a really hard place to dig right now. Um, Solomon was known also as the king of wisdom. He was the king of wisdom. If you go and you read 1 Kings, which I would encourage you guys to do if you're looking for something to read tomorrow morning, read 1 Kings, the first few chapters, read about Solomon. Uh, the first thing that he does when he is crowned king is he prays to the Lord that he would have wisdom, and God answers and gives him wisdom. So he's an extremely wise man. He's extremely uh, well thought of. Uh, an example of that you guys may be familiar with uh, is where two women come up to Solomon um, claiming that they both uh, have the same baby. Basically, one woman says, this is my baby, she stole it from her, and the other woman says, no, that's my baby, she stole it from me, and uh, Solomon is trying to sort it out, and he says, okay, well, let's just cut the baby in half and give each of you half the baby, which uh, sounds morbid. What Solomon was doing there in his wisdom was just simply saying, well, whoever the real mother is is gonna say, no, 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 just take the baby. It would be better that you have the baby than for it to be cut in half, and that's exactly what happened. So just an illustration, if you guys are familiar, that story of Solomon's wisdom. He was very wise um, in many ways. Uh, he was also known for great, having great wealth and great power. So he really had it all. Okay, he really had it all. Even the queen of Sheba literally makes mention to his wealth and his power and travels all the way to Israel to see uh, and to experience the wealth and the power of King Solomon. So he was a great guy, but he was also a very sinful guy. 
He's a very sinful guy. I'm not going to stand up here and try to defend him because he doesn't deserve it, okay? And just like I don't. Um, The best man is a man at best, right? So even though he was a great man, even though he was a king, even though he was the successor of David and he ruled the monarchical kingdom of Israel, he was still a man, and it came out quite a bit. His sinfulness came out in, first of all, he had 700 wives, okay? 700 wives. How wise can you be? To have seven, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's a disconnect there for me. Um, if I had 700 clones of my wife, then it would be good. But I don't know if she can hear me or not at some points. Uh, he had 300 concubines. So 700 wives, 300 concubines. Um, the wives that he had were described as foreign princesses. So basically he married for political reasons. So uh, one of those specifically being the daughter of Egypt, of the Pharaoh. So if you marry into another country, it was like a political way to instantly have a political treaty between another nation. So he sort of took advantage of that. Um, Solomon, unfortunately, one of his biggest downfalls as a man was that he permitted his wives from foreign countries to bring their idols and their gods and their ways of worshiping into Israel, into God's chosen nation that is to not have any other gods before him. He allowed them to bring them in, okay? He didn't take a stand on that. He didn't take a stand on that. And as a result, well, 1 Kings 11:4 says, I'll read it, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So over time, his wives' gods began to turn his heart from the one true God, and he began to worship these false gods. The principle here um, that I just have to mention is that those closest to you will sway your heart. Okay, they will sway your heart. Be careful who you let into your life. Be careful who you let into your life. It will affect your heart. So not only did he do that, not only did he begin to um, have a heart for these pagan gods, but he also accumulated great wealth to himself, which if you look at Deuteronomy 17, uh, maybe just write it down and I'll read it. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, in the law, God says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, will cause the people to turn to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there's God through Deuteronomy, through the law, very clearly and explicitly saying, that you are not to accumulate wives and money and power and horses. And here you see Solomon doing exactly the opposite. And it was, in the end, it was completely his downfall and his demise. And not only his downfall and demise, but the downfall and the demise of every generation after him. Because Solomon would set the tone of idolatry and power-thirsty dictators that would follow him and take his throne on for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. In fact, it was Solomon's sin and his power-hungry attitude that split the kingdom right after Solomon's reign into two kingdoms, the two tribes in the south and the ten tribes in the north. And now Israel would be severed and be split from that point forward. So his sin had great, great effects. Now, 1 Kings eleven thirty through 34 says, 
Um, it was because of these sins that the Lord punishes Solomon. Okay, so it was, there was a direct link between his lifestyle that he chose and what happened to him. Now, not only that, okay, not only did that all go bad for him, but he, left, he lived, as we will see, an extremely empty full life. <laughs> okay, he lived an empty full life. Let me explain what that means because many of you in here are living that life. You, you assume usually that to live an empty life is to be someone that has nothing. Okay, so the only people that live empty lives are people that are maybe sleeping, um, you know, down on Bear Creek or don't have a house or people in Africa that have nothing. But the reality is, is that most people that live empty lives have everything. Um, the, most people that, that live empty lives, there's actually physically nothing wrong with them. Most people that are suffering and hurting the most inside, you would never know on the outside. Because they seemingly have it all together. They have their college degree. They have their job. They have their car. They have their house. They have their marriage. They have their kids. They have all the things that you would think of as success in life. But on the inside, they're completely broken. Okay, this is why we have to evangelize to everybody. Okay? Because the people that often we think are the most well are the most sick. Solomon had everything. And he gives us a window into his soul. And it is diseased. He gives us a window into his soul and we see brokenness. We see hurt and longing and shame and all of these things. On his exterior, he was the perfect man, right? But on the inside, it looks extremely different. I think one of the best verses to describe the heart of Solomon is in chapter one, verse seven. Doug Gardner, he texted me this verse this week. He said, this is my favorite verse of Ecclesiastes. It's a really, really good verse. Chapter one, verse seven, look at it. Solomon says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Okay, what Solomon's saying there is he's observing the physicality of the world, he's observing nature, and he says, it's so depressing that all the rivers are flowing constantly one place to the ocean. They all flow to the ocean. All the water ends up in the ocean, but yet the ocean never fills. How depressing is that? It's like never ending, and then he compares it to the eye of man. He says, so is it with the eye of man that everything that we look at and everything we ingest and everything that we eat and everything that we hear and every piece of wisdom that we learn and acquire and knowledge that we gain, and nothing ever fills us. That's what he's saying. He's saying we're like the ocean. We cannot be filled. And what he's saying even more than that is that he feels like the ocean that never gets filled. He gives us a glimpse into his heart and he just feels utterly and completely unfillable. Nothing can do it. No amount, of, uh, no amount of wisdom or riches. No amount of anything can seemingly get to fill that void. Because of that, Solomon becomes an example for thousands of generations, thousands of generations, thousands of people, for generation after generation after generation. Here we are, okay, 25, 2600 years, whatever, later, reading about the emptiness that we all still feel. It's timeless. It's completely timeless. Now, let's just read verses one through 11, and I just want you to hear in entirety sort of the, the tone of this book. Starting in verse one, 
The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. Okay, pay attention to that word. He's going to use it 37 times in the scripture, in this book. Vanity of vanities. And he's not talking about someone staring at themselves in the mirror. He's talking about the pointlessness, the hopelessness. It's vain. It's all for nothing. Okay? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, round and round it goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been does is what, oh, wow. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Boy, that's a lesson if we could learn. Good grief. Read our history, and we'll know what to do, but we don't read our history, do we? We do the same things over and over again in history. It's a cyclical. If we would look at our history and see what's already been done, we would know what's coming, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. He's saying nothing's new. Everyone thinks, every generation thinks they're doing something new. They're dressing new. They're doing new things. They're modern. They're progressive. It's all been done before. What our country is pushing on us is progressive, liberal agenda. It's exactly what Rome did. Nothing is new. It's the same thing nations have been doing before and before. Homosexuality, that's not new. Bestiality, that's not new. Transgender, that's not new. It's all been done before. In fact, it's been done a whole lot worse than we've been done. And, and Solomon is saying it's, it's nothing is new. It's the same cycle over and over again. Man gets sinful and sinful and sinful, and then we need reform, and he goes back. And then he gets more and more and more sinful, and then he needs reform, and he goes back. It's the same thing we've been doing in our country. It's the same thing we've been doing in history. It's cyclical. It happens over and over again. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. And I just wanted to read that because I wanted you guys to hear the tone of a man who is broken, a man who is, is honest, a man who is raw, who is willing to let you see into the heart that many of us have very similar. Now, if I can pull your attention on one thing really quick, and I think this is important. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to 1 Kings chapter 2. Today I was uh, really struggling with this, this teaching because I just didn't have a lot of time. And I uh, was working on other sound things today. And, um, and I was just like, Lord, where do I go with this? And I thought, well, let me just start by getting to know Solomon. So I'm trying to get to know Solomon and looking at reminding myself who he is and all these things. And I go back to 1 Kings chapter 2, and I found this interesting discourse between Solomon and David, father and son, right? And it's where David's at the end of his life, and he's about to, to give his last words of wisdom to Solomon, okay? And I'm like, how cool is this? How cool is this? This father-son moment, this like, on your deathbed, son, here's what I gotta tell you, you know, before you die, you know, before I die, here's what I gotta tell you, this, this moment. So, so read this with me really quick. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, David's time to die drew near. And he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. 
Man up, son. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, <coughs> excuse me, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, I read that having been thinking about how sad the life of Solomon was, that, that he found such depression and, and, and so little joy in his life. And then you go back to the beginning of it all when his father first gives him wisdom. And I'm like, David, you completely blew it. You completely blew it. You set up your son. You set up your son to live a life of hopelessness. And you say, what do you mean? He told Solomon to, to, to obey the Lord. He told Solomon to do the right thing. You know what he didn't tell Solomon? The best part about David. How to be a man after God's heart. What he essentially told Solomon was, was to do something that he couldn't do. Solomon, go live a good life. Be a man. Be strong. Do what's right. And God's favor will be on you. Have you guys ever tried to do that? How did it go? You can't do it. You can't do it. How many times have I told myself in my life, come on, Sam, be strong. Do this. Do what's right. Okay, do it. Just focus. Okay, follow the Lord here. Don't. And it doesn't work. Now, David, who was famous not just for being a king and not just for doing what David did, but David, who was famous for being the man after God's heart, out of anyone should have imparted the most important wisdom he possibly could have imparted to Solomon, and he didn't. He should have said, son, you're going to fail. Son, you can't find joy through pursuing it. Son, you can't find happiness in this life by striving. He should have said, son, there's only joy in befriending and knowing the heart of God. Son, give your weakness to God. I mean, David, who sat in caves running from Saul, sitting in rags, having no strength, could have imparted that wisdom to his son. He said, son, just believe in him. It's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about establishing your kingdom. It's not about establishing my kingdom. But instead, David put this sort of legalistic burden on his son, and, 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 and I, it breaks my heart. He didn't tell his son to go love the Lord and to have a soft heart before the Lord. He told him to go pick up yourself by your bootstraps and go make things work. And if, if, if the gospel is true, we know that's not possible. Now, let me bring this down to home a little bit. This is my tendency with my kids. I wasn't here Sunday. Apparently, this is what you guys talked about, so maybe this will just bring some support to that. But this is what I naturally do to my kids. I'm not interested in their heart most of the time by nature. I just want to push them out of the way of the puddle. Okay? Like, don't do that, son. Don't do that, daughter. Don't, you know, don't do that because that's going to mess up your life. Don't do that because that's going to make things hard for you. You know? Don't, don't have sex before you're married because that's going to make marriage hard. Don't, don't, don't drink and don't do drugs because that's going to make your health bad and that's going to make your, your, you might not get a job when you're older. And like, What am I doing? That's not my job as a Christian. My job isn't to point everything to the circumstances and moral, moral circumstances of bad choices. My job as a parent, as a Christian, is to say, guard your heart. Guard your heart. 
Jesus is the only joy. Because what will happen is if I, push them out of the, the, if I push them out of the pitfall of sin, they'll fall right into the pitfall of religion. Right? They will. If I can get my kids to completely avoid all of the pitfalls of drugs and alcohol and, and sin and, and lying and deceit and all these things, they're going to fall right into the, the pitfall of religion where they are self-righteous, where they think they can earn their own salvation. And they're even farther from God if they, than if they would have gone the other way. We need to go for our kids' hearts. Go for our kids' hearts. Say, son, daughter, it's not about doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. It's about trusting the right one. It's about letting him live through you. It's about making much of him. Go after God's heart. He wants your heart. It's about the heart. It's not about doing or not doing. Does that make sense? And so I, I look at Ecclesiastes and I think, I don't want my son or daughter to feel like this. How do I avoid that? It's the gospel. They need to know. They need to know that this is not the avenue by which to find joy. Because we push things on our kids because we love them. You gotta go to school. You gotta get a career. You know, you gotta make the right decisions. And that's, those are all good things. But we push that harder than we push what really matters. Man, I don't care if my kids don't go to school as long as they love Jesus. As long as they know the heart of God, right? I mean, that's what matters the most. Solomon, oh, if your father would have told you, Solomon, don't go chasing perfection because you are a sinner. Go chasing God, and he will perfect you. He will work on you. I mean, oh, how different it could have been. So, how do we read the book? I'm changing gears back now to, to this. Sorry, I kind of went off on that. Um, how do we read this book? Two, two quick things, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sum it up. How do we read the book of Ecclesiastes? Before we can understand it, we gotta, we gotta look at two things. Number one, we need to understand the genre of this book, okay? I mean, this is, this is really where I, I think if you guys can tune in, um, again, this is nuts and bolts, um, but if you can tune in, this is really gonna be helpful for you. Um, understand the genre of the book, okay? And what I mean by genre is that the Bible is written in different clumps, okay? We have the genre, for instance, of, of the law, the Torah, Okay, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, this is where God is giving his laws, God literally speaking to his people. We have the genre of history, narrative, 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, those kinds of books. We have prophetic genre, Isaiah, Revelation, etc. Apocalyptic, Revelation for sure, Daniel. We have discourse genre, where there's conversation back and forth, much of Job is discourse. We have gospel, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John epistle, poetry, and then lastly we have this genre called wisdom. Um, and Ecclesiastes would sort of fall into the category of wisdom, the wisdom literature, okay? But it's kind of a blend. If you notice when I read it, it's very poetic in nature. Um, it's very poetic in nature. So it's kind of a blend of like at the end we get to some wisdom, but the first nine, ten chapters are really just kind of like poetic. Like Solomon's just kind of like blah, just letting it out. He's just Whatever's on his heart. So it's kind of a blend of those things, two things. But here's the important thing to know about Ecclesiastes. Okay? There is a difference in the scriptures, um, and once you get this, it makes reading the Old Testament so much easier. Okay? There is a difference in the Old Testament scriptures, and really all of the scriptures, between the Bible capturing man's heart and God speaking through man. 
Does that make sense? So the Bible does two things. It's, it's a source for God to speak directly to you and I, okay? He does that through Jesus Christ. He does that through the epistles. He does that through the prophets. Um, he, he can, God's voice, this is, this is the law, this is his heart, this is what he does. And then there's other parts of the Bible that are literally just taking a picture of the way it is. You know what I mean? Okay, so Ecclesiastes is, is God allowing us to just simply see man for who man is, to expose the heart of man. A couple other examples of this would be uh, the book of Job, because I read the book of Job. Um, there is a lot of verses in that book that if you took that verse and put it on your fridge, it would be heretical. Okay, but God's not saying that. It's Job's stupid friends. Or, or it's Job in his flesh, in his sorrow, you know, saying things that are absurd. And what God is doing is he's allowing the Bible to be a testimony against man. <laughs> he's, he's allowing the Bible to be uh, a snapshot of the need for man to be saved. Now, Ecclesiastes is very much that. You can't just take a verse out of here and put it on a mug, okay, because much of this stuff sounds heretical. Much of, much of it sounds hedonistic, meaning that life is just all about pleasure and things like that. But what God is doing through this book is he's allowing the reader to see a snapshot into man's sinfulness. Does that make sense? So those are two different types of scripture, and you really have to understand that. Not everything that Solomon says is like, oh, that's 100% true. It's not. Solomon is a sinful man, and God is allowing him to write out of his sinfulness, and then at the end, God is speaking prophetically into that. Okay, so there, there, is, there is a little bit of a difference there. Sort of like Paul when he talks about, should we sin that grace may abound? He says, no, I speak in my flesh. He's kind of like having this conversation with himself. This is not how you should be. This is how you should be. And the, other, the other thing that you have to understand with this book, um, we talked about this more on the Sunday teaching, so I'm not gonna go too far into it, is that this book exemplifies the fall of man. Okay? It shows the fall of man. It shows that man was once with God, created out of two ingredients, heaven and dust. Okay? And when man sinned, one of those ingredients was disconnected and we were left in the dust. That's why when I made this graphic, I, picked, I took a picture of the desert. I didn't take a picture of that. I traveled to the Mojave Desert. No, um, I, I, I used that picture because I want that to sort of be the theme here. In Ecclesiastes, it is really the raw reality of what life looks like separated from God. It is the destitute life of the dust of this world absent from the presence of God. And it is Christ in the Gospels that becomes dust so that we can be reunited with heaven. That is the theme of this book. All of the Old Testament is simply pointing towards Christ. And I just want you guys to remember that as we read this, that this is a picture of fallenness. This is a picture of the disconnect between God and man that God so desperately wants to heal through Jesus. Now, why should we read this book? Because it's for everybody, okay? It's for everybody. Everybody in this room can benefit from this book. It's for those that are just starting out in life, okay? Many of you would say, I'm just starting out in life, probably still, and it's probably true, okay? For those of us that are just starting out in life, we have much of life ahead. This will allow us to put things in perspective, to, to allow life to not jade us and ruin us, because we know what life is. It's dust. It's not eternal. We should read it because it's for those who have lived lots of life. For those of you that have many years behind you, this book is going to allow you to know where to file those years 
What was the point of that pain? Why did I have to go through that marriage? Why do, why do I have to have that, that distance between me and my son? And why, why do I have to have that sin in my life? Okay, this is gonna help you file that stuff, that pain, that suffering, and understand why it was there. This book is for those that are hurting in life and want answers. This book is for those questioning the existence of God. Okay, for those that want answers to hard questions. It's for those enjoying life. Okay, for those of you that are saying the same, this is depressing. I love life. Life is great. Life is awesome. Why are you talking about all this depressing stuff? Okay, well, this is going to help you to continue to enjoy life in a way that will sustain, in a way that will be healthy. It's for those that are fearful. It's for those who are godless, and it's for those who are godly. This book will force us to take an honest look at our lives and, and hopefully will press on some areas that we don't even realize are idolatry, that we don't even realize are things that we are worshiping and finding joy in and are gonna leave us high and dry. Can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> so here's the roadmap. That point wasn't important. Um, here's the roadmap. Here's what we're gonna kind of just attack in the next uh, nine and nine weeks. So So I'm going to split this book into two parts. Uh, so the first half of the nine weeks, we'll, we'll take on the first part. Second half, we'll take the second part. The first part is really just Solomon's life, uh, so Solomon's observations of life, okay? Solomon's observations, the things that he is just noticing and illuminating about life and the pain of life and the sorrow of life. Um, he talks about everything from the vanity of wisdom, <clears throat> the vanity of efforts, the vanity of achievement, 
the vanity of life, rivalry, selfish sacrifice, the vanity of human power, the vanity of greed, and the vanity of religion. Those are the things that we're gonna look at and see the emptiness in those things apart from God, okay? Um, Hopefully that's gonna really reach out into all sort of areas of our lives. And then the second part of the book is more of his conclusion. Okay, that's where he's gonna look at the death and afterlife. We're gonna talk a lot about the afterlife, a lot about death. Talking about man's limited wisdom. We're gonna talk about how to balance life in the light of eternity, which is actually probably one of the most intriguing topics in this book, okay? How how do I live my life in light of the fact that this is all for nothing? If it all seems for nothing, then why do I go to work? I mean, there's reasons for this. God, God gives wisdom for all of those questions. Um, and then lastly, the meaning and purpose of life. So these are the topics we're gonna go through in the next nine weeks. So I just really wanna give you guys that little bit of a, of a teaser tonight and, and just invite you back um, to take these on, head on. And then I wanna challenge you guys also to read Ecclesiastes ahead. Would you do that? Um, if you're looking for a place to read or, or even if you just wanna take a quick break from wherever you're reading, dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, um, read ahead because what I would really love it's for you guys to have questions in your head already when you come to this services. Um, n- I never listen better any time than when I've already studied something and I'm looking for answers. I mean, when I'm like, oh, I'm confused about that, let me hear a teaching on it. That's the, that's the most I learn um, is when I think that way. So read ahead, get curious, whet your appetite with this book, um, and we'll go at it together. Sound good? Okay, cool. Uh, let's all stand, and I'm gonna pray, and then uh, we're gonna go eat some, some snacks and hang out. So... Lord, I'm just thankful tonight for uh, this book and thank you, God, for the wisdom that's in it. And we just pray, Lord, that um, as we just kind of laid a groundwork tonight for what's coming up, um, Lord, that you would really bless this. God, that um, your spirit would just really bring refreshing joy and peace into our lives, God. And so many of us in this room just um, feel like we know the answers, but we don't feel like we know how to implant them. And we don't feel like we know how to push forward in life, God. And I just pray that the gospel would just really heal through this series, God. I also pray, Lord, as we just kind of hang out, that people would be compelled to stay and, um, and to get to know some new people and have some conversation, Lord. So um, we, just, we just love you. We bless your name tonight, God.